You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. Today, we're going back looking at the Old Testament again, and you know, if, if there was someone I have to get on for the Old Testament talk about it, it's my guest today. I mean, as soon as this guy writes anything about the Old Testament, I'm already looking with eagerness. When I get the IVP catalog of books coming out or... Baker catalog, whichever one it is, since he's done Ryan for both, and I see one of his books in there, it's, this is non-negotiable, I am getting this book to order right now. And this one is no exception. Today, we're, we've got Dr. John Walton back on our podcast, one of our favorites. He's been here several times here. He's professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College and graduate school, where he has taught for almost 20 years. He's published nearly 30 books, among them commentaries, reference works, textbooks, scholarly monographs, and popular academic works. He was the Old Testament general editor for the Cultural Background Study Bible, and is perhaps most widely known for the Lost World books, including the Lost World of Genesis 1, the Lost World of Adam and Eve, the Lost World of the Flood, and the one we're going to be talking about today, the Lost World of the Torah. His areas of expertise include the importance of the ancient Near East for interpreting the Old Testament, as well as the dialogue between science and faith. So, Dr. Walton, welcome back to the show. Always great to have you here. Great to be back, Nick. Good conversations. So, uh, if my audience doesn't know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Well, I, I grew up uh, being very interested in the Old Testament. Grew up in a family, in a church where the Bible was very important. Uh, went to college not knowing what I wanted to do, was an accounting major, but then finally got my vision straight and uh, decided that I was going to specialize in Old Testament. So I went to Wheaton Grad School and got my master's in Old Testament, then went to Hebrew Union College. It was at Hebrew Union that I started to understand how important the ancient world was for interpreting the biblical text. Mm -hmm. So I started focusing on that and did my dissertation on the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of how I got there. Then I was at Moody Bible Institute for 20 years, and now I've been at Wheaton for almost 20. Now, you said you had a love of the Old Testament. Some of my listeners might be a bit surprised by it, perhaps, because they say, you know, Jesus is all in the New Testament. Why would you be more interested in the Old Testament? Well, I, it's hard to go back and think from when I was a kid and why I wanted to focus on Old Testament. My, my speculation is that um, we used to learn a lot of Bible trivia. Mm. And of course, there's a whole lot more Bible trivia in the Old Testament. So, maybe that's the reason why I kind of focused there. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I grew up doing a lot of Bible trivia and such as well. And most people, are, for some reason, don't really want to play me in a game of Bible trivia. I, I really don't understand that. It, it's such a mystery. Um, anyway, looking at uh, <clears throat> your book here, something that occurred to me when I was about it is, going back to my own past, when I grew up, I often went to Bible school, sometimes at my own church, sometimes at French churches and such. And one of the things you remember from Bible school is learning the Ten Commandments. And we go through them, and strangely enough, as far as I know, none of us ever dared write the question for some reason of, what does adultery mean? Which probably would have been very interesting to discuss with elementary schoolers in Bible college, in Bible school and such. Whatever it is, it ain't good. Yeah. <laughs> but we learned it all, and so we are saying, you know, this is the law of God. These are the commands of God that we're supposed to follow. Were we entirely wrong in thinking that? Well, I think it's a category error. Um, they're obviously important. They're things that we are supposed to um pay attention to and prioritize, mm -hmm. but it's really what category we put them in. You use two interesting words, law and command, mm -hmm. and those are both open to discussion as to whether they best classify what we've got in the biblical text. Mm -hmm. Now, let's uh, look into what you're talking about here. You've, uh, mm, I'm not sorry. sure. <laughs> sorry, I forgot how to look here. Anyway, you've... Uh, You've said at the start of every single book, the first preposition every single time is that the Bible is an ancient document. That seems, the Old Testament, in fact, is an ancient document. But the New Testament is too, but since we're talking about the Old Testament, that seems kind of like an obvious given. Why do we need to state something that's so obvious? Well, it's obvious, and of course, to me, it's so obvious it almost... Is, isn't worth repeating, but the fact is, as I speak all around the country and the world, I find people who just have never thought of it as an ancient document. Mm -hmm. If you ask them, is this old? They would say, oh, why, yes, it is. But they don't have the idea that they have to interpret it as an ancient document. They still want to read it kind of as a very modern, fresh, alive kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think part of that is definitely though because... People think this is the Word of God, and if it's the Word of God, it should really be, you know, we got the plenary inspiration of Scripture. It should be clear to us, so why should we need to study it? Well, people certainly want to believe that they can get what is there to be gotten, mm -hmm. and that God has spoken clearly to them. But of course, as you know, that's why I keep saying the Bible is written for us, but not to us. Mm -hmm. And lots of times we want to jump right to the for us part without going through the little bit additional work of the to us. Could that be, for instance, an example of that might be when some Christians get together for a Bible state for church and they start going with a passage and they ask, what does this passage mean to you? Instead of starting with a question, what does this passage mean? Right. Well, we have to know what it meant to them before we can really do a good job at knowing what it means to us. Mm -hmm. You have to start with the context. But again, people don't, don't in, intrinsically think that way. Yeah. 
And I'm sure you wouldn't object to people looking back at the Old Testament and seeing Jesus and they're probably understood since where Jesus himself did that. But I have a habit of telling people when you read the Old Testament, I want you for a little while to stop being a Christian. Read it as if you were a Jew who was getting it for the first time, or maybe even if you want to be a little bit more speculative, read it as if you were an Egyptian or a Babylonian trying to understand this other group out there and see what you can get out of it. Then you can go and you can say, where if I was like a first century Christian or so, how would I see this document? But start first, just how would a Jew see it? What would a Jew think about this passage apart from any knowledge of Jesus? Well, anything that can help us set aside our own cultural blinders and our own theological filters mm -hmm. it can be a benefit in reading. That's mm -hmm. why I wrote that book, Old Testament Theology for Christians, mm -hmm. and I tried to help people think about how to start in the context and the time period itself, mm -hmm. and then gradually get to the point where we can figure out what it means to us as Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, Next, uh, tomorrow I'll actually be teaching at a church here in the area, and I get to pick what I'm going to be speaking on. I've decided I'm going to be speaking on honor and shame in the Bible, since that's so badly not understood in communities today. Most Christians, they don't have a clue that honor and shame is even a driving force in the ancient world. And I've considered something I'm going to say is, well, some of you might think you don't need to bother to know the culture and such since this is the Word of God. I invite you, look in the back of your Bible. How many of you all have maps in the back of your Bible? Why do you have them there? Because you do not know the layout of ancient Israel or the ancient Mediterranean world just because it's the Bible. That's put back there so you can have a guide to understanding all the places you're reading about. That's absolutely true. That's one of many ways that we should be alerted to the fact that the, the we're outsiders mm -hmm. to the Bible. We don't like that. Yeah. We don't like to be outsiders. We mm -hmm. feel like we're intimately inside uh, because God has spoken to us. Mm -hmm. Well, he's spoken for us, but we're outsiders to the biblical text. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on to the idea that the way we interpret the Torah today is influenced by the way we think law and legislation work. Today, I see a lot of debates going on about, say, for instance, the situation at the border. And everyone is saying, we need a law passed. And, or someone said, we've got enough laws passed. All right, we need to observe the laws. We've got, everyone is discussing law, law, law as if that's the solution to everything, regardless of what side they're on. And then we go to the Old Testament, and well, lo and behold, we see this referred to as the law. Well, it makes sense on the face of it that we think of it as what we've got in our American context. How are we wrong? Well, we have to ask the question whether they thought about the regulation of society in the ancient world the same way we do in the modern world. We can't just take a word that we have like law and impose all the baggage and all the understanding, cultural understanding that we have of that word and assume that we can read that in. Mm -hmm. So, of course, law is our translation. The word Torah is the Hebrew word. And we better understand what that is and how it 
fits in culturally before we jump to conclusions. Okay, so what is it and how does it fit in? <laughs> well, that's the whole book, Nick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the understanding of what it is. <laughs> what, do you want to give me the book and just two lines? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, sure. If you can, that'd be great. <laughs> you know, the whole idea that we think about law in terms of um, something that's statutory, something that's legislative, something that's got a an official political body that puts it in place, another institution that enforces it. All of those things are part of what we think about when we think about law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I found, and I'm not the only one, is that in the ancient world, that's not how it worked. They did not have a legislative body. They did not have a, a corpus of literature that they could go and consult to understand law. Mm. Uh, and so, the idea that the Torah would have uh, stood as that kind of document uh, just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. But does this mean, then, that they didn't have any idea of legal categories or rules that society was meant to live by? Well, certainly they had ways that they understood society should live, but the judges didn't consult law books in order to adjudicate cases. Mm-hmm. Um, politicians, well, of course, you just had kings, and they aren't making laws. Hammurabi did not make laws. Mm-hmm. That's not what that Hammurabi steely is. Mm-hmm. And certainly there are ways they're supposed to live, but is that what we call law? Mm-hmm. Torah focuses more on instruction, and it's tied in more to wisdom. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we talk about even Proverbs, we think about ways that we ought to live, but we know that Proverbs aren't law. Proverbs tries to give us wisdom so that we can live wisely. Mm-hmm. And I use that comparison in the book to try to talk about how the Torah gives wisdom for living in God's ordered world. Yeah. I, I think we might have something similar to an extent today still that when Congress, the branch that we have, it's really called the legislative branch, not the lawmaking branch, because they didn't see themselves as lawmakers originally. They saw themselves as discovering the law and then applying it to us. Would the ancients have fought the same way? I don't know if they thought of themselves in in terms of discovering. Mm. Um, To them, there was an an ancient wisdom Mm. that had been preserved in society that the elders of the clan or the tribe or whatever it would be would have insight into and that's how they would decide on on cases that were brought. Now, of course, the Torah is something given from God, but it's given from God to help them understand what covenant order should look like. And in that sense, this is not sort of a universal morality for everyone. This is what Israel, relating to God through a covenant, uh, ought to look like so that they bring honor to God. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's very good that we have it that way as well, because if 
you look at our laws today, if we even took, let's say, one law, such as copyright law, and we wanted to be clear on what our copyright law entails, just for one thing about what it entails, could be as long as the Torah itself, if not <laughs> longer. And our lawyers spend so much time looking at every single word of a law whatsoever. I think the foreign, the ancients would look back, look on us today and say, are you on nuts or what? They worked a lot with kind of common sense. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that you talk about how they'd go to the elders of the people and such, because it sounds to me like they'd go to the people that had been around the longest, and thus they would have the most wisdom to adjudicate on decisions. Absolutely, and that, that wisdom was based a lot on tradition, but it was also based a lot on God's revelation of what being in a covenant with Him should look like. Mm -hmm. So, when we talk about the term legislation, what do we really mean? Well, when we talk about legislation, we talk about making laws, mm -hmm. and that's something that we do, but that's a relatively recent trend to do things that way. Mm -hmm. You can trace it back, the history of it, and others have done that, and I allude to that history, but that's that's not the ancient way uh, to make laws that therefore are then binding on society. Mm -hmm. And when these laws are made, now that would also mean that they're even if it was general wisdom guide, there still would be many kinds of enforcement. We can read in the Old Testament many times that someone would be put to death, for instance, for a certain practice. But at the same time, would this always be the case? Or could it be, a, you know, this is what the Torah says at this point, but a judge could lead up to his discretion on a certain point and say, yeah, I don't think that would really apply here. The judges were supposed to exercise their wisdom, and that's going to vary case by case. The, uh, the fact that the biblical text talks about certain behaviors with certain kinds of punishment is a way to convey this is the sort of thing that would constitute a wise, uh, measured, balanced, appropriate response. Mm -hmm. It's not legislating that that's what you have to do. Okay. Let me give an example, because this is one that a lot of skeptics of the Bible always bring up. If a woman is pledged to get married, and her wedding night comes, and the groom comes out and says, Yeah, I'm disappointed, Miss Woman, because you know, she's not a virgin, because, hey, there's not a bloody sheet here. And so many people say, Well, look. Those Hebrews, they didn't have a clue about basic biology and anatomy because not every woman bleeds in Sometimes there's tears beforehand and such, but now every single woman is sentenced to death automatically. Is that really what would happen? We have very little indication of how much of the specifics of the law mm -hmm. were actually enforced and carried out in... Um, in strict ways. Again, that's trying to give a sense of how decisions should be made wisely. But there is always the flexibility of a judge to decide in a particular case. 
After all, we wouldn't expect that Torah would have said, mm-hmm. now if, if two women come to a king and they've got a dead child and a live child and they want to know, uh, you know, they each claim that the live child is theirs, what is the wise thing to do? It, it, Torah doesn't have things like that. Solomon says, cut the baby in half. I don't think the Torah would have said something like that, but that in his judgment was the best way to discern who the true mother was. Mm-hmm. And that's given as an example of his wisdom. Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. And, you know, we could also even point to Solomon, I think, in another way, because if Solomon had all that he needed to rule over the people of Israel just because he had a copy of the law, why on earth would he pray for wisdom to guide Israel? He could have just said, well, you've got the law right there. You know what it says. Do it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that shows up some of the difficulties with the law because it's not comprehensive. It's not exhaustive in any way. There are all kinds of international political com- um, decisions that Solomon would have had to make that he felt he was unprepared to make. And the law would not tell him how to make those decisions. There are likewise plenty of instances within domestic uh, legal situations that the Torah simply does not cover. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons we know that it's not a legislative system. Mm. But, Dr. Wharton, the law itself says that it's eternal, that it's an everlasting covenant. So, wouldn't that mean that it would never, ever change at all, that everything in there would apply for all time to all peoples? It's the covenant that is eternal, not the Torah that's eternal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Torah governs the covenant, and the covenant is a relationship between God and Israel. Furthermore, that Hebrew word eternal refers to something that is enduring. It's mm-hmm. open-ended, no anticipated kind of term at which it comes to an end. So, it doesn't really say eternal, it says that it's enduring. So, what would that say to a lot of Christians today where I don't meet me even much anymore, but so many atheists and kind of seem to think that every Christian out there wants to install a theocracy among us and go back to the Old Testament law, which is obviously God's perfect rule for how to build up a nation and such, and apply it to us. Is my thinking just entirely wrong? Well, they're totally misrepresenting what the Torah is. Mm -hmm. Torah was never extended to everybody. Mm-hmm. Torah was something between that regulated God's relationship with his covenant people, Israel. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's designed for. The Torah itself, even for Israel, was not designed to set up an ideal society. Mm-hmm. It sets up a society that's going to honor Yahweh in the context of the ancient world and the covenant relationship. So, it's not set up as an ideal society. So, we shouldn't worry that, um, well, it talks about slaves and it has a about to say. and all of those things. We worry about those if 
we think that the Torah is an ideal societal structure, but it was never intended to be that. I think that's a misrepresentation that both Christians and non-Christians uh, are guilty of and don't recognize it. Could we say the, the Torah was meant to be, like you said, general wisdom, but also perhaps for the people, a starting point to meet the people where they were, and in the end, then, eventually things like, say, slavery and such get abolished, even though they're not explicitly abolished in the, the Torah itself. But like I've told people, if you wanted to say God should have eliminated right then, where please tell me where Joe Israelite would have gone to get a job to pay for his family because, you know, he couldn't exactly go to the 7-Eleven or the Walmart out in the wilderness. Um, that's that's the truth, and uh, again, the it, God has to. I always hate to say God has to. Um, I'm not making the rules, but it, it makes sense that God will be communicating to them in the context in which they're living. And if they're living in that context, other people aren't living in that context, and yet anything. Uh, in the line of behavior has to be contextualized to some extent, and clearly the Torah is. Now, this also doesn't mean that the way we demonstrate that Torah is from God is by going and comparing it to all the ever ancient literature out there, legal codes and such, and say, see how superior the Torah is to everything else? I mean, it could be superior in some way, sure, but that's not the main point, is it? Well, when we say something like that, we're using our own sensibilities as the criterion. It's, it's superior because I like it better, or I think it's better. Um, but the fact is, we are not the final judge of that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, there are places where even our modern sensibilities would conclude that the Babylonians were more, more merciful or more just uh, than what we find in the Torah. Mm -hmm. That's not the issue. It's not up to us to make those decisions. Yeah. Yes, we had uh, Richard Averbeck on my show a couple of months or so ago talking about slavery since he, he wrote a chapter of that book you uh, co-edited on behind the scenes of the Old Testament. I brought him on to discuss that further. And one of the things he kept saying is, there are so many ways that we might look back on the ancient society and say, gosh, you missed the mark with things like slavery and such. But they'd look at us and say, Wow, where is your loyalty to your employer? Where is the love of family that's supposed to come first? It's it sounds like C.S. Lewis said that every single culture can look at another one and see what they think are blind spots that that culture has. That's true, and, and besides that, of course, what we think about when we think about slavery is the uh, the Civil War scenario and uh, a case of ethnic um, and racial oppression. Um, and that's not the same institution that we find in the ancient world where it's dead slavery. Mm -hmm. So, again, we end up comparing apples to oranges. So, you've said that this is the case that we have in uh, other law codes as well. Why should we think that's the case? I mean, what, what evidence can you bring forward for that? Well, my point when I compare the ancient world is that once we realize that the ancient 
people in the ancient world, Babylonians, Egyptians, whoever it might be, thought differently than modern Americans do, that at least should alert us to the fact that we have to think about whether Israelites are thinking like us mm -hmm. or thinking like them. Mm -hmm. It just highlights that there's a difference that we ought to consider. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we should generally um, understand that the likelihood that Israel's thinking like us instead of thinking like Babylonians and Egyptians isn't real high, but we still take a look at it. Uh, so those kinds of situations just cause us to take a peek and say, okay, so if, if the Babylonian legal collections were working this way, X, Y, Z, uh, is there a reason to think that the Israelites were also thinking in those terms, or is there a reason to think that the Israelites were thinking about law exactly the way we do today? It's just an, uh, an approach to uh, thinking about the issue. Yes, but Dr. Wharton, those other people were pagans. They were outside the covenant, and Israel was the good, pure people of God. Why should we think that they'd think the same way? They're supposed to be set apart, right? Well, and lots of people that made up our constitution were pagans, too. Mm -hmm. uh, just, because, just because we're thinking in particular ways in our culture doesn't mean that uh, Israel had to think the same way we do. And some of these things, like the role of law in society, is not a matter of being pagan or not pagan. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of how society operates. Mm -hmm. it, it's something where I would point out that when Solomon, is, it, but when the Bible brags about Solomon's wisdom, it actually does so by saying, Solomon knew even more than the pagan neighbors around Israel, which means Israel must have realized these guys do know something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you say here that uh, the Torah is similar to ancient Near Eastern legal collections, and therefore also teaches wisdom, not legislation. So when th this term, I think it's referring to idea to a practice of didactic teaching. Do I have that right? Yep, yep. The ancient Near Eastern collections were didactic in nature, and that fits right in with the wisdom concept, which Deuteronomy makes very clear. Mm -hmm. So, a didactic rather than a legislative purpose. Mm -hmm. Could you explain for my audience what exactly is meant by didactic? Well, didactic means it has a teaching focus. Mm -hmm. It's meant to instruct you, not instruct you in the, uh, the rules that you have to follow, but instruct you in terms of how you think about life and live it well. Mm -hmm. So, to go back to the example I used of the woman bleeding and such, or supposedly not bleeding, it doesn't mean that she'd be brought to the court immediately, and people would say, well, look, we understand there are extenuating circumstances here and such, but this is what the law says, and we have to do what the law says. You know, there, we're familiar with ways in which we try to learn the proper ways of thinking mm -hmm. outside of sort of... Um, strict rules. I used the example of the book of, of learning math. Mm -hmm. You do all of these math problems, mm -hmm. you know, the word problems that lots of students don't really like very much. And you do those word problems not so that you can learn the train schedules from St. Louis to Chicago when one train leaves at one time and another train leaves at another time, and that you really have to know when they're going to pass each other and where. Mm -hmm. It's rather you're learning to think mathematically. Mm -hmm. We learn scales when we learn piano. 
And that's not because everything you're going to play is going to be a scale, but that helps you to think musically. So the idea of Torah to help us to think in ways that will honor God with our lives instead of just thinking that we're going to keep this list of rules. Mm -hmm. Because most of us find that if it's just a list of rules to keep, we're going to start looking for loopholes. Right. And even today, we recognize that there are certain times that there are clear exceptions to the law. If I'm driving down the road and I see a speed limit sign, and I notice it, but I say, forget the speed limit, and I drive the way I want to, however fast I want to, when the police officer pours me over, I don't have much excuse. Now, on the other hand, if my wife is with me and she's sick and throwing up and I'm trying to get her to the hospital and I'm going as fast as I can to get there, and the police officer pours me over, I think most people would probably look and say, yeah, he should give you a pass because there is an extenuating circumstance here. Mm-hmm. That's true. Mm-hmm. Now... You've also said that the Israelite covenant effectively functions as an ancient Near Eastern suzerainty treaty. That could be a strange term to some of my audience. So, what's meant by a suzerainty treaty? Well, suzerain simply means the the king who has a vassal. Mm-hmm. The vassal are the ones who are ruled. The suzerain, the king, is the one who rules. And throughout the ancient Near East, we have these documents which set up the relationship between suzerains and vassals. Mm-hmm. And since the Bible presents itself, uh, presents Torah as part of a covenant, And since we find out that covenants use the same kind of structure and format as treaties, then it makes a lot of sense that we think about Torah not as somehow legislation or law, but that we think about it as stipulations to this kind of treaty relationship. Yahweh is the suzerain, Israel is the vassal. Mm -hmm. Now, when we think about covenants... Most of us probably think immediately of a marriage, for instance, which is like the only kind of covenant we really talk about today. Uh, can you we draw any parallels to this to marriage? Not as many as we might think. Um, in marriage, when we swear before God to be faithful and all of these things, we're taking an oath. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often call them marriage vows. But it's actually an oath mm-hmm. that we're swearing in the presence of friends and in the name of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly covenants and treaties were also sealed with oaths. Mm-hmm. But the, the importance of the treaties is not to actually make the relationship, to establish the relationship, but rather to show how that relationship should be reflected by each of the parties involved. And that's part of a marriage ceremony in many cases today. Mm-hmm. And what role did, <clears throat> did the gods, or in Israel's case, God, play in all of this, in, in whenever a law code was legislated, or whatever term fits best? Well, when you take uh, Hammurabi's stele, and his list of 282 legal sayings, mm-hmm. um, those are not 
laws that the god has given Hammurabi. They're rather Hammurabi reporting to the god of justice mm -hmm. to tell him how he, Hammurabi, has been faithful to establish justice in Babylon. Mm -hmm. uh, he has, uh, he uses those uh, as ways that he has given his wisdom to the judges of the land mm -hmm. so that justice will be done. So they're not the laws of the land, they are not legislated, they are not given by the God, they're not even laid down by Hammurabi. They're examples of what wisdom for justice would look like in Hammurabi's Babylon. Mm -hmm. And if my understanding of this is accurate based on what you've written elsewhere, this would also fit in with the idea that the gods would care about this because of a great symbiosis. Because if the great symbiosis is that uh, gods and humans both in the ancient world kind of depended on each other, gods provide the blessings, the rains and things of that sort, but the humans provided the work to make the food and such for the gods and provide for the needs of the gods. And the gods would be interested then in a just society because it's kind of hard to get people to work together and bring about that food and such if the gods aren't being just. Am I right in that? Sure. The gods want to be fed. That's how it is in the ancient world. They want to be cared for, they want to be pampered in every possible way, nice houses, fine clothes, beautiful music, and of course, rich food. And so people were expected to provide that. That was their religious obligation in Babylon or Egypt or Assyria. That, that's what how the system worked. So justice was an important aspect to that because if there was chaos and um, nothing but lawlessness in society, the people wouldn't be able to live their lives, grow their food, take care of the gods. Mm -hmm. Well, that would apply for the pagan nations, but this is one case definitely where Yahweh and Israel would be different since Yahweh has no needs. Correct. So, so why did Yahweh care about justice for Israel then? Well, see, for, for the Torah, justice is not at the top of the pile. Mm -hmm. It is for the rest of the ancient world, but in Israel, holiness is at the top of the pile. Mm. And so, Torah was trying to show them ways that their holy status should be lived out so that God would be honored. So, uh, you know, again, it's not justice that's sort of the most important bottom line, but justice is part of uh, holiness. Now, that kind of gets me a bit confused, because one of the things you say is holiness is a status, not an objective. That's correct. When you're talking about this, it says this is the way Israel could live to maintain holiness, so it makes it sound like holiness is an objective. No, they're not maintaining their holiness. I hope I say that. Um, they're not maintaining their holiness. Okay. They are reflecting their holy status. Uh-huh. So, they are holy. They didn't do that themselves. They can't become unholy. They can't become more holy. Uh, God has called them holy, and so they are holy. Uh, but that has certain expectations that come along with it so that they reflect that holy status as they live as a nation. Could it be kind of, to go back to the kind of analogy I like to use, that 
I remain sexually faithful to my wife, for instance, not so we will be married, but to show that, yeah, we already are married. Yeah, that's an interesting example. Mm-hmm. Does it work? Um, I'd have to think through it all. <laughs> but I, on the surface, it, it has some uh, applicability. Mm-hmm. And I think you've said some about this in, I think it was the last word of the Israelite Congress. So, but it might need to be commented on because some people might look and say, well, geez, Dr. Warren, the Bible says, has a Yahweh says so people about be holy because I am holy. I mean, if he's commanding them to be holy, shouldn't that be an objective of theirs to be holy? And of course, that's an adjustment to the translation that we suggested both in the Conquest book and in the Torah book. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that that is not an imperative form in Hebrew. It's an indicative form. And therefore, it says, you will be holy for I am holy, or you are holy for I am holy. It's a status that God gives, not something that has to be pursued or achieved by Israel. And that would include, for instance, when Korah's rebellion takes place, and Korah and all his followers die, but they're told, get all the censors that they use because the censors are holy. Mm-hmm. They're... Lots of things that are brought into holy status by becoming part of God's property. Mm-hmm. Now, why is it, though, that, ain't that Yahweh would really care about maintaining covenant order? I mean, what's, what's so important about order for Yahweh? Well, order is pretty much the highest value in the ancient world. Um, it's not just the legal collections that reflected it, but all their understanding of, of creation, all their understanding of wisdom, all their understanding of families and society were based on establishing and maintaining order. And Yahweh works the same way. That's evident throughout Scripture. Yahweh established order, and the covenant establishes order for Israel, and that's something that God values highly. We do too today. We might have different words that we use to talk about it, but even today we talk about law and order Mm -hmm. uh, because that's uh, to have law but not have order wouldn't be very helpful Mm -hmm. because sometimes there are laws that aren't good laws. They're not functioning very well, and therefore they are the opposite of bringing order, and that's not a good thing. We could point to, for instance, laws on slavery. In the past, that most of us would look back and say, those weren't good laws. And yeah. often today, we can have people say, where um, abortion is the law of the land. And it is, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good law. Good example. Mm-hmm. So, order is the, the objective. And Yahweh is the source of order. He's the, the one who brings it about. And therefore, it's sort of inherent to who God is as well. Mm -hmm. Dr. Warren, some of your critics, though, have raised up concerns, though, because they're saying, you know, if you're going to teach that these aren't moral truths that are being taught in the Old Testament, supposedly, and such, where does that mean we go light on, say, the sexual commands? I I think you've clarified in some areas that you still agree with, say, the condemnation of homosexuality and such. Well, the fact that the Torah is not a system of morality, 
mm-hmm. does not mean that it doesn't have any implications for morality. Mm-hmm. When I say that the Torah is not a system of morality, mm-hmm. that doesn't suggest that there was no morality or that there isn't yeah. morality or that morality isn't important today mm-hmm. or that the Bible doesn't address morality. It's just it doesn't give us a system of morality. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that people are not always reading carefully what I write on that. Yeah, as I think many of us could look at, say, the holiness code, as it's called in Leviticus 18 and 20, and looking, most of us going down the line looking at those practices, we'd say, yep, we fully agree that that applies, and then we get to the one, don't have sex with a woman while she's having her monthly period. And a lot of us start thinking, um, I'm not sure if that's really such a big deal as it is. And that, that is kind of where we can get a little problem, isn't there? Well, any time that we try to take text and use it for something that it's not intrinsically for, Mm -hmm. we run the risk of being selective, just picking and choosing the things we want. We run the risk of using a text as something that it was never intended to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important that we have to understand what the Torah is and what it's trying to do before we start applying it kind of at random to various uh, issues that we have today. I think an example of that that we often see today is when anyone talks about tattoos and whether someone cares for them or not. I mean, I'm personally not a big fan of tattoos. My my wife is very interested. She'd love to get one someday if her uh, skin condition would allow it. But so many people would just go and say, well, look, here's the Old Testament. It says very clearly, you shall not make a tattoo. And, well, yeah, it also says very clearly, you shouldn't wear clothing of mixed fabrics. So, how, how's your closet looking? Yeah. Uh, again, we have to understand that all of these things have a cultural context. They meant something in those cultures, and we can't just lift it out of that culture and plug it into our own and all the very different ways that we might think about those things. So, when we do look at those kinds of things, what are some good guidelines we can follow? Because there's a fine line, of course, between applying everything to us in every single way as if we're a theocracy, and then another one is saying, there's absolutely nothing we can get out of this for our moral practice today. Well, Uh, Obviously, those are the two extremes, and uh, we don't want to fall prey to either of them. Mm -hmm. One of the chapters in the book dealt with the question of, do we just try to extract principles Mm -hmm. uh, from the text and apply those as if this is God's Word? But even in that chapter, we talked about how, um, how potentially problematic that particular approach is. So, we can't just pluck out a principle. We do need to understand each law in its ancient context. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that that should help us generate wisdom so that we can think well about what our relationship to God calls for today. For instance, if we looked at the tattoo ones, we could probably look and realize where in the ancient world, when you get a tattoo, you were marking yourself off as loyal to a certain god of sorts. And it was it, it was an indication of pagan worship and Yahweh's terms people don't give don't put anything on you that would make people think you're a part of pagan worship. 
just like in the New Testament with the commands in First Corinthians about how men and women are to wear their hair. It was based on the way sexually loose people in Corinth would wear their hair, and it doesn't mean that that applies to us for our time today. It's true, and you know, the one with the tattoo, for instance, is intriguing because the text doesn't say, make sure you don't have any tattoo except ones for Yahweh. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. Well, if the problem was only the issue of having a tattoo for that identified you with another god, why didn't it make the distinction? Mm -hmm. Is there something in that world that's connected to what a tattoo is that made it unacceptable for whatever god it might have been connected to? But even that's just tied to how they might have thought about the integrity of the skin and things that you should or should not do. Mm -hmm. But again, that itself is cultural. I'm curious what insights you might have in that passage since you've said that. I, I really don't see it giving us any indication of whether we should have any tattoos or this kind of tattoo or another type of tattoo. Uh, the text is not regulating us. Mm -hmm. It's regulating Israel in its covenant relationship, and you have to understand what tattoos meant back then, not just in terms of the nature of the tattoo that is connected to a particular god, for instance, but also how they felt about whether the skin uh, needs to be retained in its integrity. And I don't have, I don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we have the same kind of thing. I think even when we look at the Ten Commandments, because we go through the Ten Commandments and we think, ah, oh, these are good teachings for us to follow. And yeah, I think we'd agree, you know, that whole thing about don't murder really seems like a pretty good idea to most of us. But then we look and say, uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Where not only do we not have Sabbath laws necessary for the church today, although a lot of people do have our Sunday worship and such, we have it on Sunday instead of the seventh day like Israel did. And with that one, we're very quick to say, oh, we're not under the law. <laughs> but again, what gives us the right to pull that one out and have the other, other ones in there? Some people try to say, well, it's because of what the New Testament says or doesn't say. The New Testament never reiterated that one. Again, that's that's a reasoning that's subject to a little bit of debate. Yeah, I think I mean, since we talk about homosexuality a little bit, that's when it goes back to, I'm not sure if you remember seeing this, but back when, I mean, I never watched him, so, but it was very much talked about when the West Wing was very popular. There was a scene with President Bartlett talking to a lady who I believe was supposed to represent Dr. Laura Schlesinger. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you upholding the law of God, but the perfect system, and says, well, sir, it's in the Bible, it's what I do. And he says, and when he starts asking questions like, you know, are the Redskins allowed to play the football game because they're not supposed to handle a pig skin? Or, I have a daughter I'd like to sell into slavery. How much do you think would be a good price for her? And things of that sort. Both the, uh, the character being accused and President Bartlett in this are really missing the mark, aren't they? Well, I recall hearing about that episode, and I've seen transcripts of it, uh, because people mention it. Uh, but again, it reflects a poor understanding of Torah from both sides. Mm -hmm. 
And that's why I think a book like this is important to help us try to find exactly where is that path that we should be following. Now, you've said that there are similarities to how the Israelites viewed law and how the people around them viewed law. Now, when we look into New Testament times, you'll see a lot of skeptics of the New Testament say, well, geez, look at all these supposed similarities between Jesus and all these other figures. But that's obviously because Jesus is dependent on these figures. And Now, I highly dispute the similarities are there, but there is a sort of parallel mania. And you have the idea, and this was addressed in your book that you wrote with Trimper Longham on uh, the lost world of a flood. And that's this idea that the flood accounts are really copied from pagan accounts. And I think you all did a good job of despairing that one. But a lot of people could say the exact same thing about the accounts of the Torah, that the Torah is really dependent on the pagan culture. I mean, why else would it be so similar? Well, at one level, it can't possibly be dependent on the culture around it because it's part of a covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel, and there is no such kind of covenant like that between a God and his people in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. So, even if occasional laws against murdering or adultery are things we could find in those ancient worlds, Israel is doing something very different with that material, and that's the key. Mm -hmm. Of course, most countries would say that murder is not something that they tolerate. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't have anything to do with the Bible copying the ancient world. It's the sensibility of how to bring order in society. Mm. But again, we find that the Torah becomes part of this covenant relationship, which is unique. Mm. And, of course, if we shouldn't expect that the world of Israel would be completely different from the world around me. They were supposed to stand out and be a unique people, but there would be a lot of similarities, wouldn't there? Absolutely. They're part of a culture. They're not floating in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. They're part of a culture that shares a language, that shares all kinds of ideas. They all wear clothes. How about that? Mm -hmm. Did they borrow that from the ancient world? <laughs> no, of course not. You live in a culture. And so, that's where in a number of the Lost World books, we talk about the importance of recognizing the cultural river that exists. And we could say we do the same kind of thing today. Most of us who are good Christians would condemn the idea of, say, for instance, scientism, where science is in charge of everything and determines everything, and say, oh, we don't believe that, and rightfully we say that. But at the same time, we go to our doctors regularly. Right. Most of us take medicine. Mm-hmm. So, if it mean, does that mean we're depending on the culture? No, it just means we do live in a culture where we do realize that science does have a lot to say on us. We have different ways we approach science. Some people think science is everything. Some of us think it's a useful tool, but it's not everything. Again, there are many, many different ways in which any people shares in the culture around them. There are always going to be things that you adopt without hesitation and other things that you're going to dislike. And that's the whole cultural river mentality. Yeah, right now you and I are both talking on our computers to one another. And I got my iPhone right here in case someone else needs me and such. And I'm not seeing anything 
geez, I wonder if this computer was invented by a pagan. That that would really give me a lot of pause. I'm I'm living in an apartment complex right here, and I really don't care if a person who built the apartment I live in is a pagan or not. Right. Now, if we are talking about differences, though, I think we could say the difference really isn't so much in the legislation as presented. It's the object objective of the legislation. Would that seem accurate? Um, well, again, I wouldn't call it legislation at all. Right. <laughs> this legal collection has a particular objective. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's that objective that's different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it really does just show how much we are embedded in this because it's really hard for me to step out of the box and say something besides legislation or law because it, it's just so very natural. Right. It's hard to break out of our terminology, but all that terminology carries baggage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it must be very interesting when you start writing all these books and such and going through and just for the first time, even some of yourselves just saying, wait, wait, have I really, uh, I think you in Decabus in the book on the Lost War of Israelite Conquest where your son looked at the idea of be holy because I'm holy and told you, I don't think this is an imperative. And I think you were, you were a bit resistant at first to that, weren't you? I, I get called on things too. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful when my, uh, when my students or my colleagues or my children uh, call me on a, on a point because I always want to get it right. Yeah, uh, you need Eva. I think it's we've lived in such a world that I think we can be hesitant to these new ideas. And of course, we don't want to just go and believe them entirely without testing them. So when when we when someone encounters these new ideas, sorts that haven't been fought in this way for by <clears throat> by your uh, books and such, how would you ex? ex suggest someone approach it if they have their skepticism about it? You know, that's a tough one because lots of people reading these books can't really go back and check the material themselves. They can't assess it on their own um, because they don't have access to the materials. And I get that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why I try to give the evidence and try to give the logic so they can see how I've arrived at that. Um, I think one of the most important things about the Lost World books is that it helps people become aware that they, they have lots of blind spots where their own culture just kind of covers over what's there in the text and serves as a filter by which they read. And the Lost World books can help people say, I have to be more careful. Mm -hmm. I, I have to become more aware of where my culture can get in the way. Mm -hmm. We can start to observe those things and start to try to set them aside. So in this book, just the question of what do you think about when you think about the term law? Mm -hmm. And are you sure that Israelites would have thought of it the same way? Yeah, I always find it enlightening that, I mean, I, I can't say I definitely agree with everything that's said in all the books entirely. I think you'd be very concerned if I just agreed very nearly with everything, but even if I don't, it's always... Even my wife doesn't, so it's all right. 
<laughs> yeah, if it's any consolation, my wife doesn't agree with me on everything in the Bible either. So. <laughs> but but it, it always does leave me something to think about. I, mean, I still remember before I read your book on the lost world of Genesis 1, I kept looking and you know, I don't think this is a science passage, but I really can't think of how else to describe what's going on in there. And then I read your book, it's like, well, that makes sense now. Well, that's the that's what we hope people will see. Um, again, it's not that they will will necessarily agree with the conclusions we end up drawing. Yeah. But at least if we can help people to start looking beyond their own cultural borders mm. to understand how people in a different world might have thought, that's progress. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Wireless Podcast. We've got Dr. John Barton here talking about his book, The Lost World of a Torah. But if you're here next week, we're actually, I'm still working on that. I've got several possible guests and such. We've had to reschedule some shows, so that's still being worked on. But I'm going to do what I can to make sure you all get a good show for next week. Now, you also have it here that Torah is situated in the context of the ancient world. And we've covered this to some extent, but it you can't get over it enough when Dion was coming that this was a very different culture. One of the first wars with, say, um, anthropology is when you study a different culture, you have to go and say, I have to dissuade myself of any ideas that I have for my own culture. And let try and let the culture speak for itself. And in order to do that, we really do have to consult the best scholars in the field, don't we? Sure, we have to. We really have to try to use whatever resources we have available, whether we can only get to reference works or secondary resources or primary resources. Uh, we have to try to um, try to work at making sure that we're ridding ourselves of unnecessary uh, preconceptions. Mm -hmm. So what are some other conceptions of a, of a river back then if they swam in that we might miss today? I and mean, one of the ones I think we say is they, we're a very scientific culture. They weren't. What are some other things you can think of? Uh, one of the most important ones is the difference between an individualistic culture and a collective culture. In mm -hmm. uh, Randy Richards has a book called Misreading the Bible with Western Eyes. Mm -hmm. It's one of the issues that he talks about quite a bit because our individualism permeates everything we do and think, mm -hmm. including law, for yeah. instance. Um, 
but many other areas as well, our theology, our understanding of what a relationship to God looks like, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, our soteriology, is, is it me that's being saved, or is, is it God's people who are being saved, or it's creation that's being saved, or what is it? Mm-hmm. Our individualism uh, has a significant impact on how we think. But for many people in America reading the Bible today, they're not even aware of that. They think it's very natural, even good and best, to think in individualistic terms. But in the ancient world, it just wasn't like that. Mm -hmm. Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes is one of the best books out there. I think it was feared in the very first year of our podcast. I did interview Randy Richards on that book. And uh, I think that also includes another area when I said I'm going to be teaching on tomorrow, honor and shame, because that one is so driving in the ancient world. And today, most of you have no clue. I had a guest come on my show once. He was talking about how he got into studying honor and shame. He talked about going to uh, an Asian culture, and they were doing a Bible study with this girl there, and everything was going well. And Tara, she came one day and said, I can't do study anymore because I found out that that would uh, bring shame on my family. And this guy was totally shocked by this. He never heard anything before. He said, I'm going to go to the Bible and look and see if it really says anything about honor and shame. And at that point, I honestly started to laugh a little bit because he knew exact, I knew exactly what was going to happen. There, that he would find a whole lot about honor and shame. And today I, I've said, look, you go through to your average church and you'll hear many, many sermons dealing with guilt and how people feel guilty for things. You go look in your New Testament and do a search for that and you'll find very little talk about guilt if any, in the emotional internal sense. You'll find guilt talked about in the legal sense of a term, guilt before God for things that one has objectively done wrong and such, but you won't find the kind that we talk about today. But you go and you do a comparison instead, like for terms related to honor and shame, you'll find those everywhere in the New Testament. Guess which one we focus on the most? Which one? We focus on <laughs> honor and shame. Or we focus on guilt and innocence. Yeah. Most. Honor and shame takes a back seat, and we're really missing the Bible because we're reading our individualistic context into the text instead of letting the text speak for itself. And I, I don't blame a lot of people for doing that. We focus on guilt and innocence. Yeah. Most. Honor and shame takes a back seat, and we're really missing the Bible because we're reading our individualistic context into the text instead of letting the text speak for itself. And I, I don't blame a lot of people for doing this because it is very difficult to step outside of your cultural context, whichever one you're in. It is. Mm-hmm. But certainly the, uh, the honor and shame matrix uh, it's not only something that we don't naturally think in those terms, we actually have trouble understanding that kind of system. Mm-hmm. 
you know, we we can look at the uh, Japanese culture, for instance, where a, a samurai, when he worked for the emperor, he could be called to commit seppuku, where he would just kill himself immediately if a person, if his emperor asked him to. And we'd look and say, wow, that seems quite bizarre to go to that route. Why would someone do that? But if you get, went to the to the Japanese culture, they'd say that makes perfect sense. That's how you maintain your honor, even if you're dead. I mean, there are several Japanese men that when they lose their jobs and they can't provide for their family, they will go and kill themselves so that their family can be provided for through various means and they can be seen as still maintaining their honor. Again, there are numerous... Uh, sorts of things like these that we really need to be aware of mm-hmm. to read the Bible well. Mm-hmm. Now, you also say it relies on the context of covenant. So, how do we think about covenant when we're reading the Torah? Well, the covenant is God's relationship between Himself and Israel. Mm-hmm. And that covenant um, has the focus of how Israel can bring honor to Yahweh, who is their suzerain. Mm-hmm. It's all about bringing honor to God. Mm-hmm. It's not all about morality. Again, there are moral implications, but it's not all about morality. Yeah. It's not all about the perfect society. It's not all about legislation. It's all about how you honor God in the world in which they lived. Mm-hmm. You know, God cares about morality, but when we look at morality so much, it's often more about us than about God. God doesn't care about morality as an end in itself. His idea of morality is if you are a moral people, you are bring honor to me. But if you live in terms that violate the practices that I have given you, you are bring shame to me. God cares about honor and shame greatly. Morality... Mm-hmm. People today think that morality requires black and white yeah. rules, uh-huh. a system, a structure uh-huh. to know precisely what to do in one situation or another. Mm-hmm. I think the Bible would be more of the position that morality requires a certain wisdom that could never be um, exhausted in a list. Mm-hmm. And so, to think that morality can be regulated by a list that will give sort of how we're supposed to act in every situation, uh, that in itself is reflecting something of a modern way of thinking, uh, rather than saying we need wisdom from God to know how to respond to the complex situations that we face. Is that also one of the reasons we have so many trouble? so much trouble with uh, with debates throughout today because so many Christians would go to the same text and both of them are insistent the Bible backs their moral stance. I mean, there are some things that, yeah, we'll say the Bible definitely speaks on mor- morally, such as not killing and murder, I should say, and things of that sort. But if we went to another topic, such as, say, alcohol, should we drink or not? Some people would say, oh, you should never do it whatsoever. And, of course, Jesus turned the water into grape juice at the wedding. 
And then some would say, well, yeah, but the Bible also says he gives wine to gladden us. And then there are some people um, who are, are much more like my own personal persuasion where I say, yeah, I don't think the Bible condemns drinking alcohol. I just choose to not do it. Well, you've hit on a principle that's really kind of a hobby horse of mine, uh, not so much with drinking, but the whole idea of that we want to be able to say, here is the biblical model, or mm-hmm. here's the biblical view, no matter what it is. Right. Whether it's, it's something like alcohol consumption, or it's something like um, social issues, climate change. We always want to say, here's the biblical view. But the fact is, of course, in most of those problematic issues, there are people on both sides, both claiming they've got the biblical view. Mm-hmm. Fact is, on many of those things, the Bible doesn't have a view. Mm-hmm. It has maybe some information to bring to the table, but to say there's a biblical view. So I don't think there's a biblical model for what uh, diet we should have. Right. I don't think there's a biblical model for leadership. Nehemiah had some good ideas and he was successful, but he might have done some things wrong too. And there are some things that other people might have done differently and maybe even better. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't look at a biblical model for this or that or the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's not because the Bible has nothing to say. It's just that it's not giving us a biblical model for thinking. I don't see many people going to Joseph and say, well, Joseph was very successful in his economic policies. um, And therefore, since he was successful and God blessed him and God saved the world through Joseph, we should all do that same economic policy, Mm -hmm. which was basically when there's there's prosperity, tax people for everything they've got, and then store it away. And then when there's need, sell it back to them. And when they can't buy it anymore, take their land. Mm. I don't see a lot of people saying that should be how we think about economics. Not only take their land, but take the people themselves and have them become slaves to you all. Um, Yet, you know, that was a successful uh, leadership in which God did what he wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So, we have to be very careful about this idea of a biblical model for X. Mm -hmm. You know, a biblical model for dating, a biblical model for, you know, it's, it's, it's out of hand. Mm -hmm. Especially since really dating didn't even exist. Exactly. But then what are you going to say about a biblical model for marriage? Mm -hmm. Because marriage, the way we think about it, Mm -hmm. didn't exist in the ancient world either. Mm -hmm. Because that was in a clan culture. It was in a corporate, not individualistic culture. Mm -hmm. And marrying for love was not the way that it worked. They were arranged marriages. So now what do you say? What's the biblical model for marriage? Mm -hmm. We can say one man and one woman, and we can give verses to talk about that. But that's that's not quite the whole model for marriage that existed in the ancient world. Mm. Because also, if you looked in the ancient world in the Bible, I'm definitely a person who holds strong to one man, one woman, because I think that's more of what we call natural law. That's basic morality. I think we all know that's why our culture is that way, but... You see many of the heroes of the Bible sadly have polygamous marriages as well. There's a, a point I think to make that they don't seem to work out so well. 
but they're there. Exactly. Yeah. Now, one of the points also about Covenant is that the uh, Israelite society was supposed to have Yahweh's presence among them. What what do we mean by that exactly? Because it's not the case such as it's in the Garden of Eden and Yahweh comes walking through the cool of the evening on a regular basis, but then at the same time, he does tell people, you know, when you go out there and you have to take care of your business, make sure to clean it up so that when I'm passing through, I don't see anything indecent. Well, there's certainly the idea that the tabernacle and then the temple were instances where God was dwelling in the midst of his people. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's pretty clear. And so, in the book, we talk about the idea that the Torah um, is contingent on God's dwelling. That is, God's trying to give them, at Sinai, God gives them the, the way that they can order their camp and their lives and their clans and their tribes uh, so that God can dwell among them. Mm -hmm. So that, there's the contingency. And so, when God comes down on Mount Sinai, it's not just to give the Torah. God comes down on Mount Sinai and gives them the instructions for building the temple. Mm -hmm. So, what does it mean, though, when we talk about God dwelling among me? How are we to understand that today? Because there are so many people who will look and say, well, did they really, they'll say today, well, I don't really feel the presence of God right now. And we have that strong instance that if God's present, where one fears God, and that's, I think, it's part of our individualistic culture. What would the Israelites have understood when we told them God was present among them? Well, God's presence isn't a matter of feeling or emotion. Uh, there it was. They could look at the temple or the tabernacle and understand that God was dwelling there. It's just the fact. Mm. For us, of course, God doesn't dwell among us in a building. New Testament's pretty clear. We are the temple. Pentecost was pretty clear. The Holy Spirit came and indwelt God's people. Mm. And so, God dwells in us, and whether we feel like He does or not, whether we we acknowledge it, whether we live appropriately, it's still the fact of the matter is Christ in us. Mm -hmm. So, when we look at the Old Testament, we see, for instance, I'm going through Jeremiah right now in the Old Testament, and Jeremiah and Ezekiel both count, talk about the invasion of Babylon, to, Jerus to Judah and Jerusalem, and the idea that God had forsaken his people is shown when, as soon as they see the temple being destroyed, and they, everyone knows, well, it's game over right now, God's done with us at this point, and same way that when a pagan nation beat another nation's, there it's like, well, their gods beat our gods, or our gods gave up, or something of that sort. Is that the same kind of thing going on? Well, Ezekiel has his vision in chapter 10 mm -hmm. where he sees God's presence leaving the temple. Mm -hmm. It's God's presence leaving the temple that then leaves it vulnerable for the Babylonian destruction. Mm -hmm. So, that was something to mourn. It was a loss. I mean, just like the loss of access to God's presence after the fall, uh, where people were driven out of the garden. 
and lost access to the presence of God. And so, yes, that was devastating. Mm-hmm. And the Israelites were also sometimes prone to misuse the presence of God. Because I remember in 1 Samuel when they're battling the Philistines and they're getting beat. They say, oh, here's what we'll do. We'll bring the Ark of the Covenant with us. And the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of Yahweh. So when he's there, we're going to win, definitely. And the Philistines, they very well understood what's going on because as soon as they see the Ark of the Covenant, they think, oh my gosh, their God is present among them. What are we going to do? I mean, everyone had the right idea to a certain extent, but the Israelites hadn't learned that God's not a magic talisman to carry around. Exactly. Yeah. I'd like to remind everyone at this point before we go into the next question that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is supported by listeners like you. And we really could use your support. I'll go ahead and tell you something that we are considering right now is turning this podcast into a radio show. And if we do that, we definitely will need fundraising going on. I've been told the charge would be $300 a week for one hour, which is a lot, but it's something we can dream about and hope. I'd, I'd really love to see this podcast have a further reach. So if anyone's really interested in meeting that need... Let me know. But you can go to our website, deeperwatersapologetics.com, and there's a link on the side to help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click on that, and you get taken to a ministry of risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yeah, you have. That's the ministry of my, my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. You make your donation, and then you get in touch with me, or my wife, Ari, or Mike and Debbie, and say, hey, I made a donation. I wanted to go to Nick Peters. I wanted to go to Deeper Waters. We will give that donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy some e-books that I've written and co-written. Written, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed in Today's Christian. Co-written. One you might be particularly interested in right now for the past few months is Back in March, I did debate Dan Barker at a university here on the existence of God. And if you want to see that, if you want to see some of the things I've said before about it, I've got the book I co-wrote, Groundlets, answering Dan Barker, where I dealt with a lot of the theological objections of sorts. And you can, of course, go on YouTube and watch the debate that I did with him. I really encourage you to do that. You can uh, read other books as well about Cohen, God and Natural Disasters, Christian Answers for This Generation's Questions, Defining Inerrancy, and Contextualizing Inerrancy. And if you can't do any of these, I really encourage you, go on iTunes and leave a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast. I really love to see them. It's, it's so encouraging. You have no idea. Uh, um, Dr. Watton, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Uh, no, not really. Uh, my brother has an apologetics organization. Uh-huh. It's the thethirdchoice.org. That's third with three RD. And 
he addresses a lot of different apologetics questions and issues. So people could go to that website and they could try to get some questions answered. He's got plenty of articles on the site. So that's the thethirdchoice.org. Now, is that third, T-H-I-R-D or 3-R-D? It's 3-R-D. Okay. So everyone, I encourage you to go to thefirdchoice.org to get some more apologetics information here. Yeah. Let's move on here back to the book here. You say that discussions of law in the Old New Testament do not tell us about Old Testament Torah in context. That seems kind of odd to a lot of us. I mean, shouldn't this be the God's authoritative interpretation of what the Old Testament says? Uh, it's just that New Testament authors typically weren't doing that. They were trying to appropriate the Old Testament information for their own context, as, as we all do. So they weren't really trying to get back to the ancient world. They weren't trying to um, trying to sort out the Hebrew text. They weren't trying to take the context into account. Uh, they were simply trying to understand the impact and implications of the text for the issues they were facing in their day. Mm-hmm. So let's go with an example. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you know what, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That doesn't mean we go straight back to Isaiah and say, well, we have the words of Jesus here. We know exactly what Isaiah was talking about. That's correct. We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Again, Jesus is taking Isaiah very seriously. But he is applying Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And this was a very acceptable method in New Testament exegesis. I think the Dead Sea Scrolls community, the Kumon community, did the exact same thing. Right, and whether they were interpreting it rightly or wrongly, they all did it. No one objected when Jesus did this kind of thing and said, hey, you can't make an interpretation like that. They questioned the validity of his interpretation, but... They wouldn't question his methodology, would they? No, and it's, and it's really the way people have always worked to take God's Word seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's the Qumran community before the time of Jesus, whether it's the New Testament writers themselves, or just go all the way through church history, uh, that's what people are doing. Back to the very principle I laid out at the beginning of the show where I said, when you read the Old Testament, try and be a Jew first before anything else. Have to see it through their eyes. Mm-hmm. Now, you also say the Torah shouldn't be divided into categories to separate what is and isn't relevant, because we often talk about, you know, the ceremonial law of the Bible, or the, the civil law, and then the moral law, all therein. But Moses would have been very shocked to hear those kinds of differentiations, wouldn't he? That's a good way to put it. Um, Again, that's our system and our sensibilities and our decisions about what counts and what doesn't. And if there are categories, then they're not the biblical categories, and that means we're imposing something foreign on the text. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that that doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't some things that in the law that aren't 
that are related entirely to the Israelite cultic worship things, such as how to offer sacrifices and such. But the Israelites would have seen it all the same way. They would have seen these as not hard and fast rules of sacrifices, but general wisdom on sacrifices. Is that right? Everything relates to how Israelites would have interacted with God. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter if it's in the ritual category or in the civil category, there are categories anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they all are meant to reflect Israel relating to their God. When we talk about how we need to relate to our God, we can't just pluck proof texts. Mm -hmm. Does that mean then that we can actually get some stuff out of out of a book of, say, Leviticus, our event, where, geez, it condemns homosexuality. Now let's move on to the next part. Again, every topic has to be treated very carefully. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that we recognize its context and how to reflect on it in its context and then its significance to us. Uh, another proposition you've got in here, and this could surprise a lot of people, especially those of us who are Reformation Christians, I mean, I don't hold to Calvinism or anything, but, you know, we're all children of the Reformation. And when we look at Reformation, we think about terms of legalism, about how how the law was instituted to be kept so that people could be, become saved. And we look at the Galatian heresy, and we think, well, that's obviously about how you're supposed to keep the law in order to be a Christian. And you all have a statement in here that, Torah was never intended to provide salvation. That sounds very surprising to us, doesn't it? Uh, I think lots of people are shocked by it because they, they somehow think that um, because of the New Testament discussion that lots of people thought the law would give them salvation. Mm -hmm. Of course, all of that's been um, hashed over many times now with the new perspective on Paul, and I'm not going to get into that. It's not an area that uh, that I have any specialty in, but I know that that's kind of one of the topics of conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, but the idea of in the Old Testament was it ever intended to bring salvation? And our point is that never entered their mind. They didn't even know that they needed to be saved or could be saved or that sins were something to be saved from. They don't have those questions. And certainly Torah was not supposed to provide that. You know, that, that is something I find puzzling because when I read the Old Testament, I find God talking about the problem of sin over and over. And I went to look and say, well, how is it that the Jews missed that this was the real problem they were always supposed to be focused on. Well, the sacrificial system was designed to keep the temple pure, mm. not affected by people's sins, so that God could continue to dwell among them. So it wasn't about taking away their sin. Blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It wasn't about taking away their sin. It was about purifying the temple. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look at the New Testament, though, I mean, I'm not getting into the new perspective, but we do see people like, say, um, Zechariah and Elizabeth or Paul, both of which are described as blameless before the law. I mean, doesn't this indicate that they had this view of the law that it was supposed to be followed so that they could be good people in the covenant? Well, certainly the... 
the covenant and the Torah were to be observed. And I, in one chapter of the book, we spent some time talking about the terminology that talks about people's response to the Torah. We often talk about them keeping the Torah or obeying the Torah. And we talked about those words in a chapter to say, that's not really quite hitting it. Certainly, the Torah was a way to talk to Israel about how they needed to reflect God's honor. Mm. And that was a good thing then to do that. But the whole idea was that if people did not ref reflect God's honor, in what they did, that that could bring impurity to his temple, and therefore he'd leave. Mm -hmm. And so it all goes back to God's presence, and God's presence being respected and honored. Mm -hmm. Now, you said the average Israelite in the ancient world wouldn't have understood salvation like we do. They wouldn't have known they needed to be saved. If we could travel back in time and see Joe Israel and say, Brother, are you saved? He might look at us asking, what are you even talking about here? Right. Because they had no idea of the possibility of going to heaven or hell. Mm -hmm. they, there, is just no, there is no salvation. They were delivered from slavery. Mm -hmm. They were delivered from exile. But that's different from being saved from your sins. Yeah, but there, there are references that do speak to salvation in the Old Testament, such as, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And such. So, what, what well, would they come think about with salvation? Yeah, that's restored to me the joy of your deliverance from my enemies. Mm. Not restored to me the joy of my salvation from my sins. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Gary Habermas. I'm the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I teach full-time in the PhD program here. And I have been a guest on the program by Nick Peters on uh, many occasions. And over the years, I've noticed how many excellent guests he gets. And I can tell you personally that Nick reads everything that comes his way. He's a great interviewer. He's got good insight and questions. And I highly recommend his program. Now, you say also that the divine instruction is better understood as a metaphor of health rather than a metaphor of law. Okay, what do you mean by a metaphor of health and a metaphor of law? Well, health is just a, a way that, uh, that we worked with the idea of analogizing mm -hmm. how, how law and health, but it's too extensive a, an uh, illustration to get into very well here. And besides that, it was my son's illustration, which I think he did very well. But that was uh, one of his ideas of how to convey that. Mm. But it's pretty complicated to get into right here. Mm. Okay. But I hope people will read it. Yeah, I definitely do encourage people to read the book. It, it, it's an excellent book. If I, if I didn't think it was an excellent, I wouldn't be having you on here to talk about it. But you know, when we look at the next thing, it's... You also say we can't gain moral knowledge or build a system of ethics based on reading the Torah in context and deriving principles from it. So, even if we read the Torah in context, we're not going to get moral truths like that out of it. Is that what you're saying? We're not going to get a system. Okay. See, and that's the thing. People treat Torah as a system, a system of morality, a system for ethics. It doesn't give us a system. 
it gives us, um, again, a contextually understood relationship between God and his people that can give us wisdom for thinking about how we can honor God in the way that we live. Mm-hmm. But again, that's different from an ethical system. Mm-hmm. And it's more work. And it leaves a lot of things sort of uncertain. Yeah, I, I know it's the same kind of thing today with so many people who they talk about, you know, finding God's will for your life. And they expect that there's going to be some clear, absolute answer to them exactly who they're supposed to marry and exactly what line of work they're supposed to go into. And I always tell you the same kind of thing. Look, there's this book in my Bible. You might not have heard of it. It's called Proverbs. It's all about wisdom for making wise decisions. I really don't know why it is that you have that there and then think that when the New Testament comes along, God decides, uh, forget wisdom. Let's just go with this way. And you do have James 1. Mm-hmm. If any of you lack wisdom, ask of God. He's the one who gives it. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, the same kind of thing is going on there that we shouldn't go to the Old Testament and expect especially clear individualistic answers. We should expect to find, perhaps we should say, principles that we can start from and work from and then go from there to learn everything we need to do. I think the word wisdom would be better than principles. Again, we have a chapter where we said principles approach has some difficulties. Mm -hmm. So, with wisdom, what you're really saying then is that we go through the Torah and we look through and we look at how God instructs his people to act and then say, well, these are general guidelines for us to live by. And we go from there and we reason from these cases. It, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm probably jumbling it up, but it's kind of like one of the rules we have for biblical interpretation. You start from the clear passages and you go from there to things that seem unclear. So if you have a case, then you go back and maybe we could even say it's kind of like what the Supreme Court does, saying they're ruling on something new. They look at past precedents and then say, well, based on this and based on what we do have, how should we rule in this case today? Again, I wouldn't go that far. Because precedent is not much different from principle. Mm. Um, and so the idea that we're going to get some kind of... See, we, we tend to think that we're going to get the answers yeah. from, from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think we're being overconfident about that. It's not the kind of book the Bible is intended to be. Mm. It, it really is, like I said before, just some about how amazingly different we think today but even as I'm talking with you about it I find it hard to escape the categories and I mean you're a scholar here and at the same time I think it's kind of difficult for you to find ways to even explain it to us sometimes because we're so embedded in the categories well so true confession for years and years decades I used to teach Torah concentrating on principles Mm -hmm. And he was in the process of writing this book with my son, where he challenged me on that. He called me on that and about the consistency of that method and basically 
convinced me that I had been using a method that really was not reliable in that it was too dependent on our own modern judgment calls and my own judgment calls. Mm-hmm. So, as people read the book, I hope they'll see that in one sense, this involved a process for me as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it is, and that you nailed, that you kind of hit the head on it there, but we expect the Bible, since you know it's the Word of God, that has all the answers clearly spelled out for us. And if God wanted to do that, he could have done that, but he didn't. It's not as if, for instance, we go to the New Testament and, well, lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, the Nicene Creed is right there in the center of it. Right. You know, it, it's, it kind of reminds you of a verse in, I think, Proverbs, that it's the glory of kings to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of man to search it out, that God's not encouraging laziness. He expects us to go and study and make wise decisions. At the same time, I don't think he's going to be legalistic about the decisions we make. God expects his people to prayerfully consider wisdom Mm -hmm. for all the situations we face, whether they're doctrinal, whether they're ethical, whether they're social, societal. God expects his people to exercise wisdom prayerfully. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of work, and it leaves a lot of room for differences of opinion and for uncertainty. Mm-hmm. But we'd rather sometimes just give me the answer. Right. But that's not what the Bible is. Mm-hmm. And while we look at it and see more instruction, you're saying the ancient Israelites wouldn't have seen that. But yet, what's going on then when we read in Deuteronomy where it says, you know, teach your children to follow these instructions, teach your children to follow these laws. What are they being told to follow? They're told to follow the Torah. Uh That's not just, here's 10 things that you have to do, kids. Mm -hmm. Um, It's to teach the wisdom Mm -hmm. of Torah. Yeah. That's what Deuteronomy is about. Now, we could say today, I mean, they, they might have started out with, some basic practices and such, just like we do today when we're growing up, our parents usually teach us don't run into the street and play out in the street, look both ways before you cross the street, watch out for passing cars, but they don't tell us everything we're supposed to do in life. They expect us that as we get older and grow in the journey, we'll learn the wisdom of how we're supposed to live. We could also say a certain I'd like to say the quarterback of a football team. When he's starting to play the game, the coach might give him some basic guidelines on how to play, might give him something very specific to do. But after a while, unless it's an emergency situation for a team and such, the coach will say, I trust your judgment. You've learned enough. You need to make the right decisions on your own. They're called audibles. <laughs> he makes an audible call because, again, the... the the play as they set it out isn't going to work right here and so yeah use your use your judgment i'm going to definitely defer to your wisdom here because i hardly know a thing about football as it were and <laughs> you can probably tell i'm one of the our household is one of the households that when the super bowl comes on my wife will turn it on because she wants to watch the game and know what's going on in the game 
I'll turn it on because I want to watch the commercials. Yeah, yeah. Mm. That happens. Mm. Now, there's also some people who look and hold to what's called as the divine command theory of ethics. Now, I don't hold to divine command theory. I don't know where you stand on it, but if divine command theory is true, where geez, does not mean there have to be, you know, divine commands we have to follow, and where else are you going to get those but Torah? Exactly, and that's the problem with, with divine command theory. Uh, you either have the actual divine command somewhere, which would have to come to Torah, and you've already heard that I don't believe that's what the Torah is. If you don't have some written corpus, then you have to somehow think that the divine command is coming through some other medium. And of course, then the question is, where exactly are you getting that? So, again, we talk about some of those terms, but I'm not an ethicist, um, and so we, we didn't get into those things deeply, but we talked about them here and there. Mm -hmm. So, we've heard a lot about the Torah today and how we're supposed to interpret it and read it and such. I mean, what are then some general guidelines, some obvious, you would say to people who might be listening, well, I haven't read the book yet, and... I plan on reading it, but right now I'm still fairly confused. When I do my Bible study tonight and I'm reading for Torah, what am I supposed to do with this now? Uh -huh. And again, that's not the kind of thing that there's a straightforward answer to. We, we gave some chapters at the end to try to sort that all out and to talk about what people should do with it. But the fact is, if we want to have something to do with it that's going to be intuitive, we're going to run into trouble. Mm -hmm. Because what the Torah is, is not something that's intuitive to us. Mm -hmm. uh, the only thing I can talk about uh, is the idea of viewing it as a source of wisdom, mm -hmm. not as a source of rules or legislation. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that you're free to discard whatever you want and pick whatever you want. The whole idea is that it's God's wisdom, mm -hmm. but that does not generate a list of rules. I'm seeing here thing, could it be very parallel to the idea we have that when you looked at the lost world of Genesis 1, that beforehand we went and those of us who hold your interpretation thought, where it must be a science matter, and we have to find what the biblical science is, and now we look and say, well, no, it wasn't scientific at all, and the term biblical science doesn't really make much sense in that sense. So right. could it be even that when we read it as a scientific account, we not only got the text wrong, but we missed what the text was really trying to tell us. So when we look at the Old Testament law as moral commands, we not only get the text wrong, but we miss what it's trying to tell us as well. That's a good analogy. And, you know, we could also say, with the lost world of the conquest. If we think about it as something giving us regulations for warfare or justification for warfare, mm -hmm. we're looking at it the wrong way. Mm -hmm. uh, as always with the lost world books, we're basically suggesting we need to change our model for how we're thinking about the literature. Mm -hmm. Because if we think about it the way we are intuitively inclined to, we're going to be bringing something foreign to the text. Mm -hmm. And that foreign thing we're bringing is our own cultural inclinations and perspectives. 
Now, you have a section in there also, and one I found very helpful, enti uh, entirely devoted to the Ten Commandments. And I think that title alone gets us confused because we keep thinking commandments, commandments. And, well, commandments sounds like these are laws that you have to follow. If they're not the Ten Commandments, what would we best call them? Well, as you noticed in that in that appendix on the Decalogue, one of the first things I said was, the Bible doesn't call them the Ten Commandments. Right. The Bible calls them the Ten Words. Mm -hmm. And we read that, we say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But of course, it doesn't make any sense to call it what the Bible doesn't call it as well. Right. And so, when we talk about these Ten Words, well, so what are they then? Well, now we're asking the right question. Mm -hmm instead of assuming that we know. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we talk about in that appendix, exactly what are these intended to do. Of course, they're intended to do the same thing all of the Torah is intended to do. Yeah. And these commandments aren't necessarily meant to be, or these words aren't necessarily meant to be like the highest and best things necessary, because I know so many skeptics who look and say, well, geez, you think you could have said something about rape or slavery in those commandments, right. in those words and such. But that, that wasn't the purpose, was it? No, when, when Jesus is asked what, what's the most important laws, he doesn't quote the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, yep. the Decalogue. He, he doesn't cite that. Mm -hmm. Let's also get some clarification on some of those words as well. When we look at the third one, it says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That means something different than, say, using God's name as a curse word. I mean, it could include that, but I, I think God's concerned about a whole lot more than that, isn't he? Sure. The point I make there is that when we think about it, we think about ways in which we might treat God's name as if it had no power or significance at all. And so, we use it profanely, or we make a, a, a a promise in God's name, and we never intend to keep it. We treat it as if it is a worthless thing. That's a bad thing, but that's, in my opinion, not what the third word is about. Mm -hmm. The third word is about recognizing that it has power and trying to tap into that power for your own agenda. Yeah. And so, I compared it to identity theft. Uh, a name, a set of numbers can have power, economic power. And if someone takes your set of numbers to use your economic power and resources, that's a bad thing. Yeah. I think it was thought in the ancient world that if you knew the name of a demon, for instance, you could control a demon. Now, I haven't read your book on demons and spirits in the ancient world yet, so you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it, it would be the same parallel thing, where if I know Yahweh's name, then I can control Yahweh. Well, and Yahweh had revealed his name. Many gods in the ancient world did not, mm -hmm. but Yahweh had revealed his name, but then he expected it to be treated with respect. Could we include maybe as examples of violation, let's say, the word of faith teachings that believes that if you have enough faith, if you use the name of God, God is obligated to do something for you on your behalf. Sure, that's the problem. If God's name has power, then we all want to exploit that power. We're people. Yeah. And so, we want to do something to better our own circumstances by using the power of God's name. 
The fact is you can pray in the name of God, yeah. but there's a good reason why the Lord's Prayer starts with, hallowed be your name. Yep. Yeah. Because it's His will that's to be done, not ours. Mm. And when we look at murder, a lot of people get confused about murder because they say, where it's Jesus, the Bible says, you shall not kill. And then the very next chapter is, here's how you put people to death who violate the Torah. Right. Because, again, the word there is not the word for kill, it's a word for murder. It's a legal term. Mm. And so it doesn't have any reflection about capital punishment. It doesn't have any reflection about warfare uh, because it's, it's a different sort of word. So what would be entailed by murder? Well, homicide. Okay. And uh, another thing for last ones I'd like to ask about is, for one, about you shall not lie, because actually in the ancient world, lying, as we understood it, wasn't always condemned. You would say something in a situation that you knew wasn't true, and you expected your listeners knew wasn't true, because that was a proper way to save face. Well, I know a story about a lady who was talking to some Middle Easterners, so it's about getting a project done, and they said, will you have it done by such such time? Yes, we will have it done. They didn't have it done. And she said, didn't you say you'd have it done by then? The listeners knew wasn't true, because that was a proper way to save face. Well, I know a story about a lady who was talking to some Middle Easterners, so it's about getting a project done, and they said, will you have it done by such such time? Yes, we will have it done. They didn't have it done. And she said, didn't you say you'd have it done by then? And they didn't see the problem whatsoever. Well, again, they, uh, uh, I mean, to ask people, which, which of the ten are you referring to when you say don't lie? Yep. Don't bear false witness. Again, bearing false witness is a certain category of being deceptive or telling untruths. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not as broad as we would cover with the word lie, a white lie and all of this and the other things. It's just a different category. Yeah, so if we're talking about, say, the Nazis coming and knocking on your door and asking, do you have any Jews hiding here? The command, do not lie, really isn't talking about that kind of thing, is it? No, it's, it's about bearing false witness in a legal setting, in a court of law. Mm, because if you're in a court of law and you say something untrue, knowingly, about the person you're testifying about, then you're going against the standards of justice. So, while we should be people of truth in many cases, this isn't saying that you have to tell everything truly and that there could be times where it is justifiable to even say things that aren't true. Well, again, the point in the context is that you don't subvert justice. Right. And, Dr. Wharton, I'm very curious where, you, where you're going to be going next after ours, because I remember when I had you on, I'm pretty sure it was for The Lost World of Adam and Eve. I said, I said yeah, Dr. Wharton, this is really pretty fascinating. I mean, what's going to come next? The Lost World of the Flood, The Lost World of the Patriarchs? And he said, nah, I, I think we're probably pretty much done with the whole Lost World idea and we're moving on to other things. And lo and behold, what do I see coming out more? But more and more Lost World books. It looks like it's a popular theme. 
and that people want you to keep vibing. Do you have any ideas of what you're planning next on this theme? Is it going to be the last word of the Exodus, last word of prophecy, of a monarchy, of a Psalms? What exactly do you have in mind? Um, nothing in mind right now. We have six of them out, and at this point, I'm working on a commentary on Daniel, and that will take me several years. So I'm really not planning on giving attention to another Lost World book. If I were to do another one at some time in the future, certainly one of the ones I would think about would be the Lost World of Prophecy. But that's not a promise, and I really don't know if I'll ever do that or not. But right now, it's the Daniel commentary that's taking up uh, all of my attention. Well, I'd be glad to have you on sometime to talk about Daniel. But yeah, the Lost World of Prophecy sounds very, very exciting to me. I uh, have a certain penchant against the prophecy experts today, and it'd be so great to hear a word from you on that topic. Well, maybe the day will come. Well, we'll see. And Dr. Warren, I don't think there's enough time to get into another topic here on this. So, um, if my audience wants to find out more about you, um, do you have a blog, website, and email waving in touch with you if they want to find out more? Um, I do not have a blog. You know, I've got my website that's listed on the Wheaton College mm -hmm. uh, page, and so they could get to me that way. I would caution them. I, I don't mind answering questions, but I often can't answer at length, and I get many, many emails a week, mm -hmm. and I can't... Uh, can't give attention to all of them like I would like to. Mm. Um, so sometimes um, lots of questions that people have, they can actually find answers in the books that I've written. Mm. And sometimes I'll just point them there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you could come to this podcast and hear another case of him coming straight from a source. Um, the book is The Lost World of a Torah, Laws, Covenant, and Wisdom in Ancient Context. As of the time of this recording, the paperback version is 1426. The Kindle version is 1133. Uh, Dr. Warren, do you have any uh, final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Well, again, I would point out that my co-author on this book, as with uh, some others, is my son, mm. uh, Jonathan, J. Harvey Walton. And uh, so uh, his insights and contributions were very important to shaping the book. You know, do you think that perhaps in the future he could be taking up the mantle of the Lost World series? Uh, I don't know. He's he's working on his doctorate now at St. Andrews and um, don't know what his plans would be. Can you tell us what the doctorate's on? It's, it's in biblical theology. Okay. I guess it's intentionally vague for a reason. But I, yeah, I definitely encourage you all go and get this book in. Seriously, read anything Dr. Walton writes on the Old Testament. Even if you don't agree 100%, it's still very good. And Dr. Walton, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. And I do hope we will see you back here again sometime. Well, good to chat with you, Nick. And I hope your audience uh, got some things uh, to stimulate their thinking. And I can remind everyone that next week, well, I'm still working on that. But for now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off. <laughs>